Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. In the desert, there's loneliness and desolation, but above all, the deserts which we have tried to for years to coexist with bear fruits of desperation, and perhaps that's what happened 30 years ago in the city of Las Cruces, New Mexico, at the Las Cruces Bowling Alley. Maybe it was an act of desperation, or maybe it was something more. In February of 1992, two men walked into the bowling alley before it opened and forever changed the lives of seven people. Las Cruces, New Mexico, that sits only 41 miles, or roughly an hour's drive from the U.S.-Mexico border, is the second largest city in the state, with roughly 100,000 people living in its arid and dusty embrace. At the address of 1201 East Amador Avenue, in the center of Las Cruces, sat a dying communal tradition and hub of gathering and community, the Las Cruces Bowling Alley. It was February 10th, 1990, when 34-year-old Stephanie Sanic arrived early that morning to prepare for the day. It was a Saturday, and the bowling alley was expecting a busy day of families, friends, and birthday parties. Stephanie was the daughter of the bowling alley's owner, Ronald Sanic, and much in the way that many family businesses operate. As Ronald's daughter, she managed the establishment for him. On that day, Stephanie brought with her in tow her daughter, Melissa Rapace, and Melissa's 13-year-old friend, Amy Hauser. Together, the young pair of girls ran and supervised the bowling alley's complimentary daycare center. The pair were young, but there had never been an issue while the two supervised the daycare, and they enjoyed their work, which filled their pockets with the much-needed spending money that any preteen or teenager would covet. The Las Cruces bowling alley opened at 9 a.m., and while everyone waited for the day to start, Melissa and Amy roamed around the building, laughing and hanging out, enjoying the spare moments of their day before the busy-bodied work began. Meanwhile, Stephanie was in the office finishing her administration work. They weren't the only ones in the bowling alley that morning, though. Ida Holguin, the bowling alley's cook, had already arrived that morning to prepare the kitchen and get the snacks ready for the hungry bowlers. The clocks read 8.15 a.m. when Stephanie's brother Steve arrived. Steve had worked at his father's bowling alley the night before and had accidentally left his backpack behind. So, he had arrived early that morning before class in order to grab it. But when he arrived to grab his belongings, Steve curiously found that the front doors were open. The bowling alley didn't open for another 45 minutes. The doors should have been locked, and he should have had to use his key or knock to get in, and he mentioned this to Stephanie as he popped into the office to grab his bag. 
Whether Stephanie found this as peculiar as Steve did, I have no idea. But regardless, there would be no opportunity to go lock them, because as Steve Sanic was leaving, as he pushed through the front door, he saw two Hispanic men walking towards the front of the building, striding with purpose, one carrying a briefcase. And that's when the day took a turn for the worse. At 8.20 a.m., the two men, one carrying his briefcase, burst through the doors of the Las Cruces bowling alley. Neither of the men wore gloves or masks. One of the men appeared to be in his late 20s or early 30s, while the other man appeared to be in his late 40s. They carried guns and gathered Stephanie, Melissa, Amy, and Ida together, herding them into the bowling alley office and at gunpoint demanded they lay on the ground. The two men told the women that once they had what they had come for, they would leave and no one would be hurt. But like I said, the men weren't wearing gloves or masks. They clearly weren't worried about being identified, which any of these victims and potential witnesses would be able to do if let go. Well, creeps, I'm going to spell it out for you. They didn't intend to let anyone leave the building alive. The two Hispanic men began searching the office, throwing papers and binders aside, looking through the filing cabinet and in drawers, searching for something, something in particular. But as it seemed, they were having no luck. The two men spotted the safe that sat securely in the office and at gunpoint, demanded Stephanie open it, which she did. The two robbers, soon-to-be murderers, grabbed between $4,000 and $5,000 in cash and were getting ready to leave, stuffing the money in their briefcase when something unexpected happened. Three more people walked in through the front doors, which still stood unlocked. Stephen Terran the bowling alley's trusty mechanic, along with his daughter and stepdaughter, two-year-old Valerie and six-year-old Paula. Stephen had been unable to find a babysitter or somewhere for his children to play supervised and safely for the day while he worked, and his wife was also busy working that Saturday. So Stephen had brought them into the bowling alley to be tended to and cared for by Melissa and Amy, who always seemed to do a good job. Before Stephen fully understood the situation, the robbers grabbed Stephen, who pushed back but was eventually wrestled to the floor, along with his two girls. The two robbers, or rather now the two killers, fired in total 25 bullets, hitting each person laying on the floor multiple times, including execution-style shots to the head on some. They then gathered together dry, crumpled paper atop the manager's desk and lit them aflame, hoping to burn the bowling alley to the ground and with it any evidence of their presence that morning. But they weren't completely successful. A 911 call was received at roughly 8.30 a.m., a call made by a 12-year-old girl, Stephanie's daughter, Melissa, who had been shot a total of five times. Slow down, slow down. We were all shot and hold up. Okay. Where are you at? 1201 East Amador. 
Cruces ball? Yes. Okay, and there were, there were shots fired? Yes. All oh. of us were hurt. Huh? All of us were hurt. I think I'm the only one conscious. All of you were hurt? Okay, we'll get an ambulance rolling. Please. Okay, what's your name? Melissa Repass. Please hurry. Okay, Melissa, we've got them dispatched. Did you see who did it? No, sir. They told us all to get down. They shot me five times. Okay, we'll get them rolling, Melissa. Just hang on. Take a deep breath. We've got patrol units in route. How many people are hurt? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven people are hurt? Yes, I think. I Seven subjects hurt. Okay. Okay, Melissa. It hurts. It hurts. Okay. <laughs> Melissa, I've got an ambulance and I've got the police officers in route. They'll be with you just shortly. Okay. Okay. You didn't see what any of the Mom, men were wearing? all of our money. You didn't I see what any kind of the men were wearing or anything? No. Nothing, huh? They just walked in? Uh-huh. Do you know if they were black men, white we're men? We're black men. They're both black. Two black men? Yeah. Okay. No, they've left. Two black males. Please hurry. Okay, okay. It's okay, Melissa. There's a fire, too. There's a fire? Right on the desk. They're going to burn us up. Are the men still there? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. They put us in the office. They put you in the office? Yes, I need a fire engine, too. Please help me. And too. Okay, Melissa. She said they locked them in the office. She doesn't know if they're still there or not. The door's open. There's a fire. It's on Amador, yeah. Please Can you help. smell smoke, Melissa? Yes, I can see it. Okay. Can I get the fire extinguisher? Fire department, too? Yes. She says she smells smoke. They may have lit the building on fire. No, it is on fire. It is on fire. It is. Okay, Melissa. Can I go get Stand the... by utility one. Oh, ow. Okay, Melissa. We've got them coming, hon. We've got them coming. Is somebody oh, sorry, my mommy. Okay, Melissa. There's a police officer there now, okay? There is? Yes, there is. He's going to try and find you. We're in the office. The fire department, police, and ambulance arrived to the scene with startling speed, and thanks to the courage that burned in Melissa. And due to her brave actions, not only did Melissa survive, but so did her mother, Stephanie, as well as the bowling alley cook, Ida. Amy, Stephen, and Paula were pronounced dead at the scene, and two-year-old Valerie, who had been rushed to hospital, passed away shortly after arriving. The police were spurred to move fast, looking for the now-fleeing men. If they set up enough roadblocks and were diligent enough, they felt their chances of apprehending the robbers turned killers was good. Local police contacted the U.S.-Mexico border that sat just a short drive away, and put them on alert for any men fitting the description trying to cross the border into Mexico. Initially in the 911 call, Melissa identified the men as African American, but later corrected herself, and her statement was supported by the two other survivors of the massacre at Las Cruces Bowling Alley, Stephanie and Ida. Unlike the wealth of description police were able to gain from the three survivors, there wasn't really anything at the scene that would help them in their search. The two men had primarily been in the office, the same office which was then set on fire and then doused with water. Any evidence or any clue that might have been left behind or gleamed from the scene had been ruined by the time police were able to investigate. 
police were able to find someone who claimed to have heard the gunshots. While another witness saw two men running away from the bowling alley around the same time Melissa was making her heroic 911 call. And of course, there was Steve, who had seen the two men walking towards the bowling alley, missing what could have been a tragic end to his life by mere seconds. Thanks to Steve's statement and help, police were able to construct sketches of the suspects which were distributed, but nothing ever came of them. Steve, though, was asked to visit a road stop where police had pulled over a van filled with four Hispanic men that lightly fit the description. But even more interesting than the matching descriptions, the four men were carrying thousands of dollars in cash on their persons at the time they were stopped at the roadblock. But when Steve arrived, he was unable to identify any of the men, and so police were forced to let them go, no matter how suspicious roughly $4,000 to $5,000 in cash being carried on person may be, especially when it matches the amount taken from the safe of the Las Cruces bowling alley. Ida told police that the killers were startled and seemed uneasy to find that there were so many people in the bowling alley that morning. It appeared to her that what they were expecting was much less than they found, especially when the bowling alley mechanic and his two daughters strolled into work. And then that brings it all back to what the two men were looking for in the office. It certainly wasn't the safe. That had just been an afterthought, a spur-of-the-moment justification, a way to make all their trouble worth their time. They had been looking for something specific, and so rumors began swirling around the event and what had happened. Had it been drugs, cartel business, or something far more sinister or unusual? Police looked towards Ronald Sanic for answers. Ronald Sanic, Steve and Stephanie's father, had been in Tucson, Arizona that weekend on a golfing trip when the crime took place. And when he returned, he wasted no time in reopening the bowling alley a week later. Barely enough time to have the carpets cleaned and to air out the smell of gunshots. But that might have been due to financial strain. The bowling alley wasn't exactly a fountain of wealth, and a year after the murders, Ronald was forced to sell the alley in a court-mandated auction. But... Even after that, police still had their eye on Ronald and continued to watch him closely, but to no avail. There seemed to be no connection between what had happened and Ronald himself. So police were forced to continue chasing leads, which led them to Orje, Ronald's other son, who had been a bartender at the bowling alley. Due to several tips received by police, it appeared that Orje could have been a credible lead. Orje supposedly was dealing drugs from the bowling alley. But when investigators dug into Orje, all they found was a raging cocaine addiction and nothing more. Now, there was a similar crime as well, less than a month before the Las Cruces bowling alley massacre, in a gas station also in Las Cruces. Salvador Lorenzo opened up for the day at 8 a.m., and by 10 a.m. he was dead, shot multiple times with an execution-style final shot to the head. Two customers found his body in the office, where he lay dead on the floor, and $500 were missing, but some cash was left behind, 
just like in the Las Cruces bowling alley incident. All that being said, police are pretty confident the two crimes are completely unrelated. And that's kind of where the story ends. There is no trial to cover today, or confessions, because the case is still active, and still unsolved. The two robbers turned killers responsible for the crimes that day have never been identified or found. Initially, what had happened at Las Cruces Bowling Alley had received substantial local news attention, and even a little national coverage. But as the case seemed to come to a standstill, interest in the case seemingly died down. And even the zeitgeist of the online unsolved community doesn't mention this largely obscure case as often as one would think, given the brutality and randomness of the event. And that's not to mention that final burning question. Perhaps a missing piece of the puzzle. What exactly were they looking for in that office? What was so valuable that compared to it, the safe full of cash, cash which they didn't even fully take, became an afterthought? So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. <laughs>